The Renaissance Tower, a 25-story high-rise apartment building, now stands at the corner of Main Street and Jefferson Avenue in Memphis, Tennessee. It represents what urban renewal in most American cities is all about, demolishing unwanted properties and building something more profitable in their place. But what do we lose in that process? And what does that location, Main Street and Jefferson in Memphis, Tennessee, have to do with the birth of blues and American music? We'll tell you what we discovered this time on Blues Alley. Blues Blues Episode 3, Cathedrals of Commercialism. When we think of all the places synonymous with the business of buying and selling American music, New York's Ten Pan Alley, Nashville's Music Row, or Hollywood's Sunset Strip, no one ever includes the corner of Maine and Jefferson in Memphis, Tennessee as one of those locations. But the first commercial transaction that sparked a revolution and began the rise of American music as we know it today took place at the corner of Main Street and Jefferson Avenue on September 28, 1912, in a department store. The Renaissance Tower, originally called 99 Tower Place Apartments, was built in 1968 and occupies the place where Bree's department store stood in 1912. The city directory that year listed Bree's address simply as Maine and Jefferson, Northwest Corner. It was all the address they needed. Everybody in town knew Bree's. In those days, department stores had a profound impact on the culture and economy of everyday life. Everyone, even children, got dressed up in a coat and tie to go shopping at the department store, well into the 1960s. The department store was an event. It was entertainment. Arriving on the scene in the mid-1800s, department stores were built to be cathedrals of commercialism. They functioned in their heyday much the way Amazon does today, a single place where you could just browse at your leisure for what appeared to be an endless variety of products. They helped introduce the latest fashions and customs, as well as innovations like household appliances, the phonograph, radio, washing machines, television, and in the 1970s, the VCR. Most even delivered directly to your door. Department stores altered the face of the American workforce, becoming one of the first industries to employ women, and they changed society at large by offering an acceptable place for females to go unaccompanied by a man. As ridiculous as it sounds today, in the 19th century, unaccompanied women in public were viewed as prostitutes. But those Victorian-era mores were changing with the new century, and all of this female independence came along at exactly the same time as women's suffrage. Department stores became the political arena for the movement, and many, recognizing that the vast majority of their customers were female, became active supporters, allowing suffragette meetings in their tea rooms and public gathering spaces. They'd have been fools not to. Department stores also helped make several American cities world-famous destinations. Marshall Field's State Street store was still the most visited destination in Chicago into the first decade of the 21st century, and Macy's legendary store on 34th Street in New York was for a time the largest building in the U.S. with over a million square feet. They really did have more in common with cathedrals than they do with the big box stores we know today. 
Department stores were designed as social gathering spots with stunning architecture. Most had restaurants, barber shops, beauty parlors, and tea rooms. Entertainment was a centerpiece of many department stores, hiring string quartets and concert pianists to provide background music. Wanamakers in Philly had an enormous pipe organ in the lobby, and once brought in the legendary German composer Richard Strauss for a series of performances. Department stores also had music counters where they sold all kinds of instruments, violins, pianos, trumpets, and eventually records. In 1912, though, song sales were centered on sheet music. In those days, if you wanted to hear the latest tunes at home, you had to play them yourself or know someone who could. Music downloads were still a century in the future. Recorded music of any sort was more of a novelty than an industry. Record sales in 1900 totaled about 4 million units, or about a third of what Adele's album 21 sold by itself 112 years later. Sheet music, on the other hand, was big business, releasing as many as 25,000 titles a year, some selling a million copies or more. And sheet music was about to become a big player in the birth of the blues, because that was the business W.C. Handy was entering into when he decided to sell copies of his song Mr. Crump at Breeze Department Store in 1912. We tend to think of the blues as the beginnings of American music, because it was the first American art form to gain international acclaim. But of course there had been other music published in America before 1912. John Philip Sousa, Stephen Foster, and Scott Joplin were all prolific composers in the 19th century. Joplin, the father of ragtime, was a trailblazer of black American music, creating the most popular genre of the 1800s. Even W.C. Handy originally classified his music as rags. In the ragtime era, though, music was still based in the European tradition, the major and minor scales that had been the predominant tonality of Western music since Bach. It was Handy's song, Mr. Crump, that first acquainted mainstream music with the blue note, those flatted third and seventh scale degrees, and the tritone, that chromatic note between the fourth and fifth steps of the scale. In traditional tonality, these notes were considered dissonant and unacceptable, even mistakes, but Handy moved them to the forefront. He was the first to try and write down what he described as the slurs and note bending of the African-American voice. And it was Memphians who first heard this new tonality in American music, with the debut of Handy's campaign song for Ed Crump in 1909. And it was an instant hit. Between 1910 and 1912, Mr. Crump was the Handy Band's most requested song everywhere they played. But the song presented Handy with a couple of problems. First, the shelf life of a campaign song is usually just that, the campaign. Once the race is over, win or lose, the song loses its value pretty quickly. And even worse for Handy, the lyric telling Mr. Crump, now mayor of Memphis, to go get himself some air, was a little awkward, to say the least. Regardless, Handy had a hit on his hands. He now had to figure out how to capitalize on it, beyond having it requested at gigs.
In the summer of 1912, a man named L.Z. Phillips, who managed the music counter at Bree's department store, agreed to carry the sheet music of Mr. Crump if Handy would pay for the printing. So Handy arranged the tune for piano without the lyric, and Mr. Crump became the subtitle of the Memphis Blues. The day Handy met with Phillips about selling the sheet music at Bree's music counter, he was introduced to a Denver-based music publisher named Theron C. Bennett. Bennett offered Handy national distribution on the spot. It was just the opportunity he'd been looking for. So at a time when school teachers made about 40 bucks a month, Handy invested $32.50 plus a dollar for the copyright registration to have his piano arrangement printed. Music printing was an old business, existing since shortly after the invention of movable type. But it was a business that Handy was unfamiliar with, so he asked Bennett to make the deal on his behalf. The two men agreed to contract Otto Zimmerman & Sons music printers in Cincinnati to do the plating and printing for 1,000 copies of Memphis Blues. It would turn out to be a fateful decision. On Friday, the 27th of September, the 1,000 copies of Memphis Blues arrived and went on sale at the music counter at Bree's department store the next day, Saturday, September 28th. Handy took his final $3 and put an ad in Sunday's paper. The ad, titled Mr. Crump, The Celebrated Rag Has Arrived, is sandwiched between promos for Junior and Mrs. Serge dresses and children's coats. It prominently displays the cover of the sheet music. And below the artwork, the ad copy reads, quote, At last, Mr. Crump has arrived, also known as Memphis Blues, the rag that captured the entire South, controlled exclusively by Bree's music department. If you hear it once, you'll carry a copy home with you. That's a sure bet. Fifteen cents. Three cents extra per copy by mail. It appeared as part of Bree's full-page spread in the Memphis Commercial Appeal on Sunday, September 29, 1912. And with it, the first piece of completely original American music officially went on sale. To be fair, we should point out that some historians take offense at Handy's claim to the first blues tune, pointing out that Dallas Blues beat it to the Copyright Office in 1912 by a month. But Memphis Blues, remember, had originally been written as a campaign song called Mr. Crump in 1909. The only thing that had really changed was the name. Some experts even point out that, at Handy's own admission, the original song Mr. Crump was based on an existing work called Mama Don't Lau. But in Handy's day, that practice was, and still is, commonplace. Using other people's music to create your own is the basis of modern-day music sampling. And from today's perspective, it doesn't really matter as long as everyone agrees to the usage, is credited, and paid for their work. The value of an idea, much like a music sample, is in what it accomplishes. History is packed with people who almost invented the airplane or the automobile or the computer. What we remember is the Wright brothers, Henry Ford, Bill Gates, and Steve Jobs, and we can still hear the echoes of Memphis blues in the structure, technique, and tonality of American music today. Handy and his song Memphis Blues may not have been first to the copyright office, but they were the first significant blues tune, the first to realize commercial success. Memphis blues became the conduit, 
that allowed a little-known music from the impoverished Mississippi Delta to become an international phenomenon. And it's time we take a moment to remember Maine and Jefferson, Northwest Corner in Memphis, and Breeze, the department store that played an almost forgotten role in the birth of American music. The blues as a musical genre had at last been born, and Memphis blues was taking its first baby steps on a journey to becoming an international smash. For Handy, though, that fateful decision to have Theron C. Bennett arrange for the printing of his song was about to turn ugly. But that's next time on Blues Alley. Thank you for listening to American Entertainment Works Blues Alley. If you're able to support us, you can buy us a coffee on Kofi. It's not expensive, and you'll be helping us tell more stories about American culture. That's ko-fi.com slash American Entertainment Works, all one word. You'll find a link to our Kofi page in the episode notes. American Entertainment Works is a not-for-profit corporation located in Nashville, Tennessee, so your contributions are tax-deductible. The Blues Alley opening and closing themes were written by Uptown Al, as was this episode. Additional episode music was performed by The Cave Dwellers and AE Works recording artist Jim Holthauser. Bumper music was written and performed by Jonathan S. Anderson and Uptown Al. For a transcript and a list of sources for this episode, visit aeworks.org slash sources. I'm your storyteller, Uptown Al. Thank you for listening to Blues Alley.